Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, January 22nd, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. I want to read something to you because um, uh, it really struck me this morning as I was emptying the dishwasher and listening to a podcast through my uh, AirPods. Uh, I was listening to The Argument, a podcast of the New York Times opinion section with uh, our friend Ross Douthit and Michelle Goldberg being, you know, right, right, and left. And uh, the podcast began with Ross saying, well, here we are. Our, our long national nightmare is over, right, Michelle? We've had the inauguration and everything is... Uh, everything is different now. And I want to re I sat down to transcribe this because it was so startling to me. I want to read what Michelle Goldberg said in response, quote, I've been in an acute state of psychological crisis since the election of 2016. I just remember getting to the end of it. I had a toddler and a baby and getting to the end of it and feeling like finally I've reached the end of the marathon and now I can relax. And just along with the sense of impending horror for the entire country and the entire world, I remember feeling like I was walking into a personal prison that I was not going to really be fully alive again until this time ended. And unfortunately, nobody gets to be fully alive again because we are left living in the wreckage that Trump has bequeathed us, right? It's not... Uh, as it, it gets to be a big cathartic situation like there was at the end of the Bush presidency or the Obama inauguration, a sense of Camelot-like possibilities. Okay, so I, I don't want to unpack this too much, but of course, yes, the Obama inauguration was a period of immense joy and, and wonderment at the Camelot-like possibilities of a colossal recession that had just destroyed 35% of the uh, assets, uh, the value of the assets of, of every American home. Uh, not only real estate declining, but stock market, the stock market decline, everything like that. But boy, that was just, oh, what a Camelot-like wonderful moment of possibilities because this evil, horrible administration had ended. And we don't even get that now, I guess, because Trump is even worse and the virus is worse and we're still in prison and she's been in prison for five years in a state of of intense psychological crisis in a prison now there are two ways to look at this quote from michelle goldberg one of which is that it is an interesting example of the thing that noah talks about very frequently but is so deeply important which is politics becoming the uh, substitute for religion in people's lives and the and the political status of their own uh, movement and their own priors and all of that dominating their mood, their feelings, their day-to-day existences in a way that politics in a free society should not dominate. That's the whole point of living in a free society is that uh, the, 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 pol- the day-to-day political aspect can be left to most other people. And Uh, Or, so she lives in a prison created by the fact 
that uh, in a divided country, somebody that she really didn't like and who d- was enacting policies that she really didn't like had become president and was doing things that she didn't like. And that meant that she was consigned to living in a prison in southern Brooklyn where 97% of the people that she lives around voted exactly the same way that she did. Remember that uh, Sarah Live sketch on, I think, the second show of the Trump era, which was called Welcome to the Bubble. If you don't like Trump, you can live in our bubble. Here we are. And it was Southern Brooklyn, which is where Michelle Goldberg lives. So she lives in a prison in a state of acute psychological crisis with a toddler and a baby. Um, it's great for the toddler and the baby that she's in a state of acute psychological caused by an election that went uh, the, a wrong, the wrong way, in her view. And just in her personal case, which is also true of the Lincoln Project and, and MSNBC and everybody on the left who is, you know, who was talking about the nightmare of all of our existences, the Lincoln Project made raised $40 million in the third quarter of 2020. Michelle Goldberg, a second to third rate talent who has never written a memorable sentence, became a columnist with the New York Times in September 2017 because she was so completely and fully a paradigmatic, cliched, cliche-ridden example of the Times readership whose views and prejudices and nonsense and argle-bargle she was hired to represent on that page. So that's some prison. She like gets the dream job of American journalism while she's living in her prison with her two children who are having to deal with the cope with the, I'm only mentioning her children because she did. I wouldn't otherwise, but you know, have to live with the effects of having a mother who is a convict in Southern Brooklyn while writing for the New York times. I mean, you're talking about the material conditions that she's surrounding herself with, which are not very prison like, but she's describing a psychological condition one that she's fully invested in, sure, but nevertheless, one that is debilitating. I mean, okay, is it debilitating? How debilitated is she? If you're out there in public, now she's like on the airwaves, famous talking about how adult you are. It it is it is a malady. It's one that is self imposed. It's one that you can have no sympathy for, but it's a very common condition. Well, that's my question. So, Christine. Try to parse this with me because it's interesting to me because I, I will say that I am seeing evidence and signs and wonders and portents of people uh, in our general ideological camp who might be moving into exactly the same mood, though they will not be hired by the New York Times to represent it to the country um, with Biden's uh, ascension and the ascension of Democrats to the leadership positions in both the House and the Senate. Well, there is there is something extremely seductive about imagining yourself being persecuted and the only agency at your disposal is to become part of a resistance that others share because others feel equally persecuted. And that was the that was Michelle Goldberg is really the avatar of that kind of resistance, particularly the female voter on the Democratic side who was so crushed by Hillary's defeat by Trump. Like it really they did take it personally. That was Pantsuit Nation. That was that whole that whole, you know, the, the women's march all that came out of that. But the, the, the persecution complex is extremely emotionally satisfying to people. It's, it's 
kind of why we also have so many conspiracy theories that spread. It's it, there's a similar mindset, but the persecute the politically persecuted is something the right has been doing a lot of as well, right? That was the you know owning the libs, all that stuff. Like the idea that that we are we are playing out our own psychological challenges in on the sphere in the sphere of politics is then being given back to us by political leaders who play along. Trump certainly played along, but on the left, you know, the squad, the whole idea is like, we're going to be combative for you. And and the benefit of representative democratic government, which is, as you said, John, we hand over power to people that we then trust to deal with the details, disappears because they become celebrities in their own right. We invest emotional energy in them as political celebrities. Then we're very disappointed if somebody beats up on them because we're fans, we're not constituents. And I think that plays into a lot of this. So I think it's very dangerous for people on the right to look at Biden and say, he's our enemy because he's doing policy. He's making policy decisions that we disagree with. It's a punishment. It's not. It's politics. And to get back to that, you know, kind of seeing politics in that way is what we should be trying to do. But you can't do that when it's personalized and there's cults of personality and there are celebrity politicians on both sides. My one thought when I hear that, when I hear uh, what you wrote is the spoke, spoke, right. Sorry. You transcribed. These are the people who write about the problem of privilege. This, you know, this is they are they are day in and day out writing about, you know, what it's like to be materially poor, you know, on on behalf of other Americans, supposedly to be to have justice not be on your side, to have food insecurity and all these things. And meanwhile, she is in an acute state of trauma because she the president she doesn't like the president um this is this is why the this i mean this is just such clear evidence of the disconnect between um the 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 this the what we were kind of talking about i guess yesterday the woke press and uh those um who they claim to represent um it is just astounding it is it is it is a it is just this flagrant exercise in privilege. I mean, the privilege part is also, you know, um, you want to talk about political persecution that leads people to go to prison? I mean, this is, this is, uh, Alexei Navalny is in prison in Russia for the crime of being an opposition leader. Um, go read, you know, Natan Sharansky's memoir of being, uh, you know, nine or 11 years in Soviet psychiatric hospitals and prisons. This is what happens in places where political disagreements are solved by people getting arrested, thrown in jail and having the key thrown away from them. That's real. That's real. Her prison is that she lives two blocks from a Trader Joe's and Sahadi's uh, uh, merchant, where you can buy in really fantastic, you know, figs and olives and uh, and and hummus and tahina, and uh, until the pandemic hit, was living in a you know in a sort of a paradisical uh, fantasy uh, neighborhood of woke uh, brownstones and you know multi million dollar real estate values um, cushioned by the very police. <clears throat> that they that that she claims and people like her claim to revile. So the ultimate privilege is the uh, moral idiocy of saying that an American living in a country where the politics has gone against her uh, is therefore uh, imprisoned. 
Can I pull Volt off your reference there for my grievance of the day? Yes. Which will reinforce a point that you've been making over the course of this week. So back to Navalny, a Russian opposition figure who transported himself from uh, Central Europe back to Russia today was promptly, or this week, was promptly arrested and imprisoned. And according to Russian uh, courts, will be there for at least 30 days. Um, We got news today from his uh, attorney that uh, Navalny is suddenly experiencing problems with his vision, um, which is very disturbing given the fact that he was poisoned with a nerve agent by FSB agents, most likely. And um, Russia, the Russian Kremlin, obviously wants him dead. Um, So what did we see from, and I don't mean to pick on him because I like him. I think he's a good reporter, but nevertheless, this is a blind spot that if even he suffers with, then we don't know how widespread it is. James Homan, who writes for the Washington Post, said the following, the world is watching and the Biden administration is not going to appease Russia the way Trump did these last four years. Now, look, I don't think what Trump did, his obsequious behavior towards Vladimir Putin, undermining our intelligence agencies, advanced American interests, has probably harmed U.S. interests, albeit in perhaps intangible ways. But that must be balanced against the efforts made by the Trump administration to isolate and marginalize Moscow, expelling diplomats, seizing consulates, the Magnitsky Act sanctions, withdrawing from defunct treaties like the INF and open skies. All that stuff is good if you're a Russia hawk. What did Joe Biden do? In his first day in office, he caved to a Russian demand to just extend the START Treaty for five years. The Trump administration had been engaged in very tense and fraught and stalled negotiations with Moscow over a better extension of the START Treaty. And and Biden just threw it out. This leaves a lot of dangerous Russian deterrent just completely, you know, unmolested. As in which it should not be. It's not in American interest to do that. But the Biden administration had no interest in anything other than appeasing Russia. So now we get to see, A, who the Democratic hawks were on Russia and who was just anti-Trump. And I imagine it's the majority of the party because that's their ideological proclivity. And B, the fact that reporters don't have any idea how to cover any of this stuff. They just know how to cover what people say, not what they're doing. Um, so am I... Am I this is that's a very important point, and we are going to see this as time goes on. Look, Sam um, Sam Stein, uh, formerly of the Huffington Post and now of Politico, um, did the thing yesterday that we were talking about, which is to say, uh, this claim by the uh, science science of science of the Biden administration that they had been left no plan to how to. Uh, you know, to deal with the pandemic was was not true. There is a plan. It's right there on the HHS site. It's you know uh, the notion that there that the, you know that was that's a lie and it's a political lie. It's a political lie told to set the baseline of expectation for the Biden administration to zero, so that any successes are going to be seen as discon as, as discontinuous from Trump and totally totally belonging. To Biden, which is a fun political game, but it is literally some a, a game that no serious reasoning pr- reporter who has been following this for a year should let them get away with. Not because they there's no there's no benefit to the country or anybody like that in that pretense. The problems with Trump's behavior on the virus are a matter of record, and they probably lost him the election. And, you know, Biden doesn't need to be coddled in that fashion. And Sam Stein said, no, like, hey, sorry. And um, somebody, I can't remember who asked Biden, 
right? And the first sign of uh, look fat uh, Biden, you know, and dog-faced pony soldier Biden uh, in the last couple of months when someone said, hey, you know, that 100 million doses in 100, in 100 days, like that's actually the pace that we're at right now. What do you have to say to that? And he basically, Biden said, you've been attacking me on this for months. Come said, on, come man. on, man. Come on, man. Yeah. Right. But I mean, first of all, who's been attacking him from? You said that the minute I you yelled at he said he complained that he had been mistreated. Right. Okay, but but the, the, I want to. That's the, his first like the first question that he's ever been asked as president. And this he is whines about it. But the but the press's role here, particularly, I think Noah's right, particularly with foreign policy, because Americans are sort of notoriously domestically oriented when, in their consumption of news, and we have we, we've actually gotten a lot more discussion of foreign policy in the Trump era in a reactionary sense from the press because they hated Trump. But now what we're seeing is going to be more sins of omission, right? So you see tons of praise for the fact that they invited someone from Taiwan to the inauguration, right? I've seen those stories everywhere, but these details about Russia either buried or non-existent. And it's the stuff that they're not going to cover with Iran, with dismant- trying to dismantle any of the stuff that's been built up with the Abraham Accords. All of these sorts of foreign policy details, we we actually have a huge reliance as Americans on the press to report those accurately. And, uh, and you know, with the press's reputation at an all-time low, a well-earned low, I should say, um, that's going to become even more difficult. And I do worry about just general uh, knowledge when, when it comes to foreign policy among American consumers of news for just, just the reasons that Noah highlighted. And because they are not going to follow up and be tough on Biden as reporters in the same way that they were with Trump. Right. Well, I mean, look, we know that they're not going to follow up and be tough with Biden on, say, climate change. Like, th- th- that's just a – the mainstream media publishes press releases from the climate change movement. That is the coverage of climate change, and they'll do that, and that'll be so that, you know, the the the, the executive order, um, you know, uh, ending the uh, American role in the Keystone Pipeline, um, that's something that – that's 10,000 jobs – that basically were just uh, thrown down, thrown down the rabbit hole, and you know, I don't know that we'll ever get a serious question about it at the at at the briefing. Um, uh, there was a, a very stunning moment, um, and a moment that uh, led my uh, my my uh, my Twitter uh, my Twitter friend Nathan Wurzel to point this out, which is Pete Buttigieg somehow got asked this question at his confirmation hearing, I think by Ted Cruz about the Keystone Pipeline. Why, I don't know, because he's up as Transportation Secretary, and I'm not clear why the Transportation Department is implicated in this, But he, because uh, I didn't delve very deeply into this. But he said something like, well, yeah, that's 10,000 jobs. And Pete Buttigieg said, well, they'll have to find other jobs. <laughs> and Nathan Wurzel said, who's a Republican consultant, said... See, we only just don't have to be crazy, meaning they're going to hang themselves. Like they, they do. You know, they, they. We're already seeing evidence of the Democratic Party, and and the fact that it's cosseted by this bubble media and all of that. Not having Trump as the total target and you know negative reflection point and all of that. As long as the Republicans aren't crazy, you're going to get the transportation secretary for Biden airily saying that ten th- that, that the that the loss of ten thousand jobs is just fine. 
you know, uh, and that that pipeline goes through. And they're not really swing states because obviously uh, uh, Tester uh, didn't beat Barrasso or whatever. I can't remember. Uh, Bullock didn't beat Tester, whatever. Um, but I mean, it goes through Wyoming and that that stretch of land down from from Alberta. And if you know. Uh, if there's any hope uh, of of of, uh, of a democratic revival there, or or if you want to go into Pennsylvania and say uh, they're going to come after you next, they just went after the Keystone Pipeline. Biden says he doesn't want to end fracking, but uh, if they're going to do this with a pipe that doesn't even involve the extraction of of fossil fuels in the United States, but merely the tra- its transmission through a pipe under the ground to the Gulf of Mexico. Good luck to you. And I see how Connor Lamb does in Pennsylvania in 2022 if stuff like this goes on. And that's an interesting thing. It's only been two days. It's only been two days. And the Biden people are taking their masks off. They're telling everybody to wear a mask. And then there's Jen Psaki without her mask at the so i looked up the um executive order on the masking right uh jen saki asked why biden had taken off his mask uh at the lincoln memorial on inauguration evening said uh, he was celebrating and we have more important things to talk about oh really i didn't really know that there was anything more important than people had to wear masks according to according to the uh, the dogma of the Biden campaign itself. But so the section one of the executive order says to protect federal workforce and individuals interacting uh, all on duty on onsite federal employees, onsite federal contractors and other individuals in federal buildings and on federal land should all wear masks, maintain physical distance and adhere to other public health measures. And then in the next section, part D heads of agencies may make categorical or case by case exceptions in implementing this to the extent that doing so is necessary or required by law and consistent with applicable law. So here's my question. Does this mean, uh, oh, oh, and then the head of the agency has to put in writing why it's okay basically for this area or this not to be masked. So does this mean that uh, Chief of Staff Ron Klain has issued a written statement that says that it's okay for Jen Psaki to not wear a mask at the White House press briefing. I don't care. I don't think that she should have to wear a mask or that Fauci should have to. They care. Well, but so this this is the problem here. And the masking is a perfect example of this, as well as the press problem. So a lot of what we're seeing in just this first week is the Biden administration and a lot of their supporters in the press saying, trust us, we're not Trump. So you see, you know, we're going to issue these executive orders that apply to all of you, but trust us, this is all for your own good. And then you see, you know, at at the inauguration, for example, Governor Whitmer from Michigan, Governor Murphy from New Jersey, all celebrating and partying. These are governors who have issued 25 people or less cannot gather in 25 people or more in their states cannot gather. But they have these exceptions. They say, oh, you know, when they're asked about it, like, why are you breaking the rules that you apply to your own citizens? It's, well, we have an exception for, quote unquote, political activities. My own mayor in D.C. did this when Biden won. So this this constant hypocrisy, which during the election was kind of at a low simmer for people and on the back burner, this should be brought to the front burner. And there's been one, you know, Jack Schaefer in Politico wrote a great column yesterday or the day before saying, 
geez, media, I mean, enough with the kind of slavering devotion that you're showing to Biden. Like, this is not good. This is not your job. And he was the only one. And there was he even got some pushback for that. So I think that they risk... Uh, we don't trust the media and we, we, we have a lot of uh, declining trust in our political leaders. They should tread very carefully when it comes to these matters of hypocrisy, dismissing the people's concerns about things like mask wearing and the inconsistencies that they're showing. That is a trust building exercise. And we were told that's what Biden was going to do is rebuild America's people's trust, the unity, et cetera, et cetera. This is not the way to do it. I don't you know, care if it's uh, what about ism. But, you know, all we heard for months was Trump not wearing a mask uh, at all times in public is the most dangerous thing. It is killing people. When you are the president, you have to model good behavior. There are people that believe in him that if he doesn't wear a mask, they won't wear masks. He's not taking this seriously. Um, And now Biden, who says we have to uh, we have to lead by our, our example. Um, is is up and I'm with John by the way I I don't care but but the the hypocrisy is just preposterous yeah I mean the whole point about what is going on in 2021 is how high is the temperature going to stay on this issue um, there are vaccines coming. Right, their their vaccines are being delivered, and they're not being delivered fast enough. But there's a third vaccine, apparently. There's a Johnson and Johnson vaccine that's apparently going to come online. Um, uh, and so there'll be three vaccines, and maybe four, because AstraZeneca will come online. At which point, you can presume that the supply chain problem or the number of vax of the number of doses problem will effectively end up being solved by the multiplicity of vaccine because you're not depending on two. You now have four suppliers instead of two and, you know, all of that, you know, and so if what you need is syringes, that can be taken care of by the Defense Production Act and these companies will make make it as fast as they can and the Johnson & Johnson is only a single dose, which then really cuts down on, on, on all of this. So, in fact, the temperature may go down. And what Biden said during the transition was, we're entering in a terrible period. If we just get through the next hundred days, right, this, we get through the first hundred days and everything will be great. And then he, they started moving the goalposts. Suddenly it's, we're not really going to be done until the fall and everyone's going to have to wear masks after they're vaccinated and we can't have any shows and we can't have any public parties and we can't do anything and we're not going to do anything. And look, we said this in 2020 and we were wrong that people were not going to put up with this. But I mean, you can't make the focal point of the, the, the way out of this crisis being you must get vaccinated and then say, and then say, a. uh, Joe Biden is vaccinated, but he still needs to wear a mask, as does everybody who is vaccinated is going to have to still wear a mask. So the people who like are maybe worried falsely or whatever about being vaccinated, you're not even saying, you know what, get vaccinated, you can take the mask off. Like, this is our gift. The gift to you is you, you don't want to do it. You hate needles or you're worried about vaccine. You can take the mask off. We're not going to say that to them. And meanwhile, every public official, everywhere that they go, 
is going to be delivering speeches and doing things and taking their mask off because there's going to be some exemption for that. I, I, I don't understand. Like they're the one, they're the ones who are turning the temperature up. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's insane. It's creating cognitive dissonance every 10 seconds you think about it. I mean, I, think yeah, I mean, some of this, some of what you're describing is Anthony Fauci who made his big, you know, debut, second debut yesterday, this ebullient display of relief at having the Trump administration in the rearview mirror and now getting to say whatever it is he thinks. And, and uh, you know, frankly, the Trump administration deserves quite a bit of this. And the president himself deserves quite a bit of this. He was not a productive figure when it comes to presenting a unified front and a consistent message on the pandemic. He was very erratic. And that could be pretty frustrating, and I get it. Um, but the adulation that this guy receives is just completely divorced from what he's said and how he has behaved. And it's about time that we attack the cult of personality around this guy because it is unearned and undeserved. He lied to the public about masking in order to protect PPE, but he did it. He justified it that way. He lied about the, the, the level at which we would get herd immunity in part as he said and confessed to manipulate public opinion and had, and said, well, you know, that's just, it was good public policy, but that's not your job. It's not your job. And we just got over this national, national rending of garments over the mendacity of public officials and how dangerous that is for, for our psychological health and our health is, 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 you know, the, the stability of the civic compact, but this is okay. Because it's good-hearted lies. It's platonic lies. And, you know, look, the thing that gets me is that Anthony Fauci is worshipped and held up by the very piece, not not by, you know, uh, people who who supported the way the, the, the U.S. handled the pandemic while, while he was in office, but he is, he is worshipped and held up by people who say, this was a disaster. We, we did everything wrong. And then, and then Fauci is somehow... Th- comes through with their hero. I will say, though, that he did completely destroy this obnoxious political narrative that everybody in the press swallowed, that that uh, there had been, there was no vaccine distribution plan bequeathed to the Biden administration. Fauci got up on stage and was like, that's not true. <laughs> and, it was, and it's painfully obvious that it's not true. So the, 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 the readiness with which reporters swallowed this narrative that was obviously political positioning and just repackaged it for public consumption is um, an ominous portent. Look, if we need to know what is going on in Washington in terms of the truth and falsity of the way our public officials talk, if that's something that's of interest to you, particularly when it comes to investing, and particularly when it comes to fiscal policy that helps direct your your own understanding of how to manage your finances and your portfolio and your retirements and whatever else, you need to go and take a look at the products and work of our friends at the Bonson Group. The Bonson Group, a uh, bi-coastal financial management and services firm with $2.6 billion under management, produces two different uh, web document policy statements, one called the dctoday.com, the other called dividendcafe.com, that provide you with an understanding of the intersection of markets, 
uh, monetary policy, Washington policy, and your own pocketbook. This is a these are uh, wonderful, fascinating, um, serious pieces of original analysis led by David Monson, uh, who who writes them and is a, a unique uh, voice in the financial services industry in his command and and uh, and collection of uh, of hard data and an understanding of the role of policymakers and politics and how that interacts with how the markets function. Um, and he is a real antidote to, uh, as you've heard me say many times before, the intellectual spaghetti of the financial advice and services business. So please go check out the dctoday.com, dividendcafe.com, and take a look at the work of the Bonson Group, a financial services and management firm that brings an entirely new level of understanding to the business of helping people steward their wealth. And we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Um, okay, where do we go from here? <laughs> um, uh, Wait a minute. I just, I, yeah. Just to just circle back to what we opened with, I just opened the New York Times opinion page and I'm confronted with this headline. Imagine America is an emotional teenage girl. It's easy if you try. <laughs> oh, <well. laughs> I think that there's there really has not been a reckoning, as you said, particularly in the New York Times opinion page and, and venues like it, with the profound psychological torment they put themselves through and continue to put themselves through and are addicted to. This is a satisfying condition they're in. It's not going to go away because Trump is gone. Look, there's a there's a scene in in the odd in the movie The Odd Couple or the play The Odd Couple by Neil Simon where Felix and Oscar are discussing Felix the fact that Felix's wife dumped him and made him move out of the house. And he says I'm impossible. Felix says I'm impossible, I'm terrible, I'm I'm awful. Uh I hate me. I really hate me. And Oscar says, "You don't hate you." You love you. You think nobody has problems like you. They don't hate the Trump era. They love the Trump era. They're they are more addicted to the Trump era than the than the than the people who were on the mall. That this is everything to them. That's what the prison, the psychological prison that Trump consigned Michelle Goldberg to was the making of her career. An identity. I mean, you know, uh, all the people that were, you know, sort of even uh, associated with commentary one time who have gone on to become leaders of the resistance, Jen Rubin, Max Boot, Pete Wainer, some others. I mean, this has been the most febrile period of their lives. They are being watched and paid attention to and, 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 and valued and having their work read and all of this by tens of millions of people. They're at the center of the most gigantic existential melodrama that we've seen in our lifetimes since the Cold War, the threat to our democracy, the destruction of our institutions, all focused on one person, which makes it so easy. It makes it so, made it so easy. It was just, and here's another thing he did today, and he'll do five things today to do this. Now, the rug has been pulled out. We've been talking about the cult of personality. What's going to happen? The press is going to run blocking tackle for Biden. What? Biden can't fill that. 
space. Well, and the, and the, 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 the other thing that I, that you were seeing percolating right after January 6th was, well, the new threat might not be Trump, but they're Trumpists, right? The, the QAnon folks, the conspiracy theorists, they're going to march on state capitals on inauguration day. That just didn't happen, right? I mean, thank God it was good right. that we didn't have any sort of political violence on inauguration. I mean, they could have been deterred. Right. It might have been deterred, which is a good thing. But we are seeing, you know, for those of us who've been following uh, left-wing political violence for almost a year now, that continues. That's just literally, and Abe had mentioned this earlier before we started recording, like Antifa is now like the weather report. Like you get one from the Pacific Northwest every day and everyone's like shrugs. Even though federal troops are arresting American citizens, I don't see Nancy Pelosi tweeting about stormtroopers now. So, yeah, for attacking uh, federal buildings, they're attacking, you know, a, a, an ICE facility in uh, in Portland. You know, that's a in the another age, that's a, Democratic Party headquarters. Democratic head, head were, were trashed in 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 uh, Seattle. Was it Portland or Seattle? I can't remember was, which. The original Starbucks yeah, was Seattle. Uh, yep, yep. was looted and vandalized. Right. Um, yeah, you know, want to pretend that that's not like happening. The, uh-huh, sorry. They do want to pretend that that's not happening because to confront it would be to confront the people within their coalition who like that sort of thing. And they're, they're not a small number of people. Now that maybe they're not all that jazzed about violence per se, but they're really on board with anti-fascism as a cause. They like the and radicalism. Sex, <laughs> yeah. Excesses are, you know, they are what they are similarly. And I think Christine is going to write on this later today. So I don't want to step on your toes, but the extent to which, the teachers unions across this country are presenting themselves as a, as a profound threat, a real threat to democratic electoral prospects with their recalcitrance, with their absurd demands, with the, the fact that they push themselves to Fairfax County, you know, push themselves the teachers to the front of the line to get vaccinated. And now the unions are saying children have to be vaccinated first before we can get back to school. That's not even, it's not even in the pipeline. That's not something that anybody is envisioning is going to happen this year or even next and the notion now that Democrats can just pretend that this is going to go away and there won't be electoral consequences to it, I think they're going to wake up from that and they will have to confront these aspects of their own coalition in a pretty maybe patient but firm way because otherwise it's going to become a, a political problem for them. Okay, I want to talk more about this, but I also want to talk to you about our next sponsor, Mack Weldon, the premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart designs and high-quality fabrics. Mack Weldon offers a one-stop shop for men's basics, and I wear them, so you know I'm serious about this. Socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, and active shorts, whatever you need, Mack Weldon has you covered. Unlike the assortment of department store brands that make up your top drawer, all of Mack Weldon's basics have a consistent fit you can count on. From socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, and active shorts, Mack Weldon promises comfort and a consistent fit, and it delivers on that promise. You're not just going to look great in Mack Weldon. Their underwear, socks, and shirts perform well, too, from working out, going out, going out to work, or on a date. Mack Weldon is for everyday life, and it offers a wide range of customized fabrics that can keep up with you no matter what your day looks like. And Mack Weldon has created a totally free loyalty program. Level 1 gets you free shipping for life. Once you reach Level 2, by spending 200 bucks, Mack Weldon gives you 20% off every order for the next year. Mack Weldon wants you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep them, and they'll still refund you, no questions asked. So for 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com slash commentary and enter promo code commentary. The 20% off your first order is for you at MacWeldon.com slash commentary. Okay, teachers union. So you uh, know, just alluded to the fact that 
in Fairfax County, the Fairfax County Education Association has announced that it does not, it will not go back to school until students are vaccinated. And um, uh, this meets other, uh, other teachers unions that are expressing interest in stuff like this. And I am telling you right now, there's a revolution going and consciousness going on among teachers in the United States. They want in classroom teaching to become optional or they want there to be an option for them to teach at home on screens while the students are in school, if that should be the case. We are looking at a revolution led by the union to change the way instruction goes in America. And you know what? Great. How about this? Let's do that. Let's totally overhaul the way uh, education is done in America and blow up the American public school system. I mean, if this is... if they if they want to go down this road, what they don't understand, what the NEA and what these local teachers unions and urban teachers unions don't understand is there is a ready market of tens of millions of Americans who would be happy to to um, examine other options for schooling other than the goat show that took place in this country over the last year and that apparently is going to go on forever where we no, no longer have can have any, not only enthusiasm for, but confidence in the commitment of the educa- the people that we pay to educate our students in having any interest in the actual education, emotional well-being, or physical well-being of the 75 million Americans under the age of 18 who are in their charge. Christine, your kids have not been in school since March, yeah, and no, they are, I, they are fourteen years old. Yeah, they started their high. They started their freshman year of high school all virtual after several attempts to negotiate with the DC teachers unions collapsed because at the very last minute, this is another thing that I've noticed. Teachers unions, particularly in urban uh, areas, have been doing is they'll promise a plan, they'll agree to a plan, and twenty four or forty eight hours before kids are all set to return to school with all the you know you got to buy a hand sanitizer, mask, you got to make sure they're all set, ready to go, all the protocols are in place. The teachers unions will back out. They've done this multiple times in D.C. They've done it in other places as well. I think the parents and I, so I'm, you know, I'm a conservative in Washington, D.C., so I don't have a lot of people who share my political views who also send their kids to public school, but there are some out there. But what I've noticed is that my my friends, the, the, the school parent friends I have who are even very pro-union, pro-teacher, you know, very, very left-leaning, even their patience has now been tried to a point where the ones who can afford it are looking very seriously at private schools for next year for their kids, the ones because those schools have been open and functioning. The people who can't afford it, because in D.C., that's like 40, 50 grand a year per kid. If you can't afford it, they're looking at charter options. And then they're the ones who've gone full radical and say, let's sue the school district. Let's get our money back so we can take that money and do something with it to educate our own kids since the teachers are not interested in coming back and doing so. So I think it is going to radicalize even a, a kind of left-leaning parent at first, at the local level, they ought to boot anyone who's on their school board who's supporting these unions. Um, but it's gonna it's gonna work its way up, I think. And and I'll be very curious to see with the new Department of Education, uh, which we just heard for four years, the press attacking you know De- Betsy DeVos because she actually was a, a proponent of more creative solutions to public education, ones that the left hates. Um, we'll see how they respond to that because I worry the Democrats have always been kind of. In, in cahoots when it comes to e- uh, education and educational technology, for example, with big tech. Big tech would love to see the te- work with the teachers unions to make that kind of remote schooling possible because they'll make money from 
the school districts they sell their technology to to do that. So there are a whole lot of relationships there that could potentially be disrupted if that sort of revolution happens. And I, for one, hope it does. I think my kids should be in a classroom. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm serious when I say that, you know, uh, they are they are embracing they're embracing based on a, you know, a sort of an unexpected situation. They are embracing their own destruction. It would be almost as though the Luddites decided that this machine was good. This, this machine is great. Those machines we should destroy, but this machine is a good machine because if they want to make the case that remote learning is good or is fine or is better or is something that you know should be basically like an option forever, which is where this is going. I'm telling you this right now, uh, and it'll be like this: like, oh, I'm sick this week, can't really come into school, but you know what? We've already had this set up, so if there are screens in the classroom, I'll just teach from home. You know, I have a headache, I have a migraine, or you know, like uh, whatever. You know, I, I have I have diarrhea, so I'm going to stay at home um, and I'll just teach on on the screen. There is, public um, education, the public education model is a factory model. It involves thousands of people going into a single building with an ind- industrial, with a line in which the kids go from one place to another or the teachers switch in one place to another to be educated in this outmoded 19th century fashion. And if they embrace this notion that you do not have to be in the same room with kids or you do not have to be that or you do not have to be that, they are done. They are a decade from the entire system atomizing. And we've seen it time and again with the introduction of technology and the foolish, in this case, embrace of a feel of people who do not understand that the, te- the technology is going to destroy them. And um, they, deserve- they know they have a, they know they have a problem on their hands. They're just, they're, they're hostages. They have a gun to their head and they know it. They've given these unions too much power and the power that they have over them is, uh, unresistible is compelling. I read this insofar as it was possible. It's like a 25,000 word document, but I read most of the government, uh, the, the Biden administration's COVID plan that they released yesterday. And a lot of it focuses on um, teachers and schools and how to get them open. They need to get them open. They need to be open in a hundred days. Now we don't have a defined set of terms about what open means. Does open mean five days a week until 3 p.m. in person? Does open mean two days a week in a hybrid setting until 1 p.m.? Does open, you know, there's a variety of what whatever open means. They don't define their terms because they can't define their terms. Um, but among the many recommendations were, quote, in the coming weeks, the administration will release a handbook that helps schools and local leaders implement the precautions and strategies necessary for a safe reopening. Is anybody confused about this at this point? Is anybody vague, sort of vague about how we can reopen these things? As though this hasn't been studied exhaustively, as though the last administration didn't release these guidelines almost a year ago. Um, the memo further goes on to say, quote, the Department of Education will work with HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, to ensure that guidance for schools is updated based on the latest science and any developments in the pandemic, including the spread of a new coronavirus variant that may have a high transmission rate. You know what that means. We all know what that means. They're, it's, it's a built-in cave. They're, pre- they're preemptively surrendering to these people. Um, right. It's... It, they really are going to have to confront this recalcitrance in a very forceful manner. Why? Because if we get in, because if we get into the 2022 midterm cycle and we're still talking about this, 
it's going to be a gigantic problem. Well, and we have the evidence. We, we've had the evidence about school transmission rates for months. And in fact, the journal Pediatrics just published a, an extensive study covering hundreds of thousands of students, I believe, in North Carolina. It just came out last week. That was pretty much so far the definitive study that says, particularly for K through eight, there's no, the, the risk of transmission is incredibly low and the cost, uh, both emotionally, psychologically and educationally of keeping these kids out of school is immense. So that we have plenty of evidence. And that's only the biggest, most recent study that's been peer reviewed. But there are many smaller studies that show this. There are many European studies that show this. The evidence, the science is clear. Now for high school, it's a little bit different because high schoolers are more like adults. Transmission rates are more like adult transmission rates. I could actually listen to an argument about a more hybrid or socially distant style learning for high schoolers. That I could, I'm definitely willing to hear that as a parent. But the elementary schools, which actually where the in-person learning is so important and crucial, and they're asking parents to basically educate their own kids now, that is done. The science is very clear. So they are actually the anti-science party now if they're embracing that. Look, I want to, I want to, I want to express my skepticism or my concern about this, which is, uh, about the the political blowback. Um, first of all, there hasn't been any political blowback as yet, and it has been a year. Okay, so maybe it's too soon. Um, you know, there are 78 million households with children in them. There are 170 million households in the United States or something like that. So uh, the number of households with children in them is less than half. Um, and so uh, you have people who have no incentive politically uh, the majority of uh, isn't doesn't have any skin in this game. That's number one. Number two, um, the Democratic Party. If I said to you the following, if I said, "Look, uh, the Republican Party really has to confront the NRA because that's really going to hurt them in the twenty twenty two midterms." Okay. Uh, oddly enough, though, there are a hundred million households with guns. There are more households with guns in them than children in them, but so maybe that's a bigger thing. But um, America, <laughs> there are there are uh, f- four million or four and a half million. The large, by far, the largest union in the United States is the National Education Association. By far, four and a half million people are in the National Education Association. Um, the uh, unions are uh, are have a force multiplier effect in American politics. They do canvassing. They do political organizing. Um, you know, they don't just, it's not just that you, when you engage in unions, interest and enthusiasm, you're not just getting their, their, their memberships or their, their, the people who are in the union, maybe to work for you, you are getting them to get 10 or 20 people involved as well. It is a core democratic political constituency. And the, the idea that an unorganized force like parents are going to have a huge political impact against an organized force like teachers unions i think uh we there's reason to be skeptical that explains why nothing has happened yet it doesn't explain why there is a an effort underway to break this in every major american city in this country the negotiations between teachers unions and public officials is public knowledge and the the effort of the of the teachers unions to undermine those negotiations to agree to a position and then withdraw their agreement after they've discovered that they can get whatever they want from these people. We've all watched this. If there was no public pressure on Joe Biden, we wouldn't have 7,000 words in this document to reopen schools in 100 days. The public pressure is profound okay. from parents okay. because the parents need to go back to work. Okay, here's what I'm going to try to tell you. Next, this year, 
There's going to be a mayoral race in New York City. Bill de Blasio is cannot run for a third term. There's going to be, and in New York City, 70% of the uh, school kids have supposedly opted to learn at home. We don't even know if that number is true or what it means that they opted or they didn't opt since there's only one or two days of school anyway, if if there's that. I, I don't believe the number. I don't even think they're being properly tracked. Nonetheless, you shouldn't. Those one, surveys are also all a setup. We have them in DC too. Yeah. They're they're right. Ridiculously- so there's one point one million kids supposedly in the New York City public schools. Okay, if you're right, Noah, there will be some kind of a parents' movement that plays a role in the election in the Democratic primary, which takes place in September. Somebody is going to harness this. Someone is going to run on it. Somebody, And if it has teeth, if it has legs, if it has purchase, it is going to be something that will be play a role in the election. And so it's early. It's incredibly early because it's a September primary. I, as yet, see nothing. I see nothing. I see no activism because... They're all the de- they're all Democrats. It's going to be a field of twenty people, so you know someone's going to win with three percent of the vote. You know, however it works. Uh, there's there's um anyway. So I I I New York City is an odd place to choose for this sort of uh, the largest system in the country, and it's the only one that opened. But it isn't open. It opened as a result of public pressure. It's fakey open. It's not open. It, it opened and then it closed again. And then it's not because, because, because there was, was a open. We're, we're chronicling the battle that's before our eyes and saying it's not happening. But when it was open, it wasn't open. People were going. It opened more than L.A. and Chicago and Washington. I know, DC but, and I know but that's a distinction without a difference. I, that's all I'm trying to tell you. Anyway, we'll see because. It's like uh, it's like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. The bird in the hand are the teachers' unions. The two in the bush are the are are, are unorganized parents. And we'll see if the two in the bush can be organized to be like a bird in the hand, and then we'll see whether there are going to be consequences. But we what we also need to discuss is our final sponsor today, Headspace, because I'm getting agitated. I need myself some Headspace, that daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy-to-use app so I can calm down about everything that's getting me upset here because it's the only one of the meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed? Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can, can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Look, if people keep trying telling you to try meditation and you're like, when? When would I have time? Check out Headspace. You deserve to feel better than you do today, and you can with Headspace. They make meditation simple, backed by 25 published studies, 600,000 five-star reviews, 60 million downloads. Feel happier. Meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best they'll offer right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Uh, anybody have any weekend plans? Is there a weekend anymore? I don't even know. I don't even know. We're like British aristocrats. What is the weekend? Yeah. <laughs> what is the weekend? <laughs> I, have a, I, have a Zoom, I have a Zoom bar mitzvah I have to go to. No? Zoom bar mitzvah. 
gotta say, there's, uh, you know, there are there are pluses and minuses to to, to, this, to the Zoom <laughs> culture and not actually having to, you know, d- drive an hour to sit in the synagogue is one of them. But uh, uh, Abe, what about you? Uh, I'm moving soon, so I'm actually um, going to be boxing and and actually moving uh, sort of early, moving moving a bunch of things from one place to another. Right. No. What about you? I don't think I have anything going on. Uh-huh. But like, we can't. There's nothing to do. So uh-huh. I mean, I thought you I remember briefly. He's out doing things. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there there's things are open. You, you can go uh-huh. um, and. Many people do. Like I had to go return something for Christmas the other day. I went to the mall and it was uncomfortably packed. Uh-huh. Um, so to the extent that there's stuff to do in New Jersey, people are out doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's you know we're still don't have anything that we want to do. Really, it's very different from March of last year, where it was just pure abject depression because there was nothing. You couldn't do anything. Couldn't go anywhere. Couldn't see anybody. And it just there's kind of a I guess it's just we're a lot more used to it now that it's just become something we've all adapted to psychologically, at least. Well, listen, I'm going to conclude with the words of Michelle Goldberg, even though Biden was uh, won the election and was inaugurated this week. Um, as we know, she said there's just was no catharsis like the Camelot like possibilities of the greatest recession uh, that America had seen since uh, since 1929. Um, that was why it was so wonderful to see the Obama inauguration and celebrate the uh, Camelot-like conditions of America in 2009. Um, quote, everything is still completely horrible and dystopian and lonely and miserable, and that's how I feel when I read a Michelle Goldberg column. Uh, and so, for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.